Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to illuminate the glaring inequalities that already existed in Massachusetts. Rising unemployment has made things worse for families already stretched thin, especially in Chelsea, one of the state's poorest cities, where the COVID-19 rate of spread is the highest in the state. Since the pandemic began, families have especially struggled to have enough food. But for some Chelsea residents, participants in an experimental program, the last couple of months have been easier. Could it be a long-term solution for food insecurity? Later in the show, Cambridge's on-the-ground response team combats misinformation about COVID and links residents to resources. The Cambridge Community Corps, a neighborhood reserve force for these times. Well, we have been dealing with this pandemic for going on a year. But the bigger challenge these days is the infodemic. But first, joining me remotely is Gladys Vega, executive director of La Collaborativa Food Pantry and Community Center, based in Chelsea. Hi, Gladys. Hi, how's it going? It's going okay. Good to have you. And Laura G., associate professor of economics at Tufts University. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have both of you. Let me jump uh, right in with you, um, Gladys, because since the beginning of the pandemic, Chelsea just was hit so hard, as we've said. Just a few statistics for people to put this in context. 60% of Chelsea residents are food insecure and near one in five live in poverty. 60% unemployed. And about 15,000 Chelsea residents do not qualify for federal support. Now, this new program, this experimental program called Chelsea Eats, rolled out just before Thanksgiving um, and distributed food debit cards to residents, uh, about 2,000 people um, out of many, many more people in Chelsea. Before we talk about what's happened since that program started a couple of months ago, I would like for you to take us back um, and remind people exactly what you faced when the pandemic hit at La Collaborativa and exactly what the community continues to face as COVID continues in terms of food insecurity. So I would have to say that um, in Chelsea, right before the pandemic, um, even in the best times where people had and one individual had three jobs in order for him to have one decent paying job. Families scrapped by financially even back then. They worked long hours in low-wage jobs. They lived in overcrowded apartments in order for them to afford their rent. They could creatively or would buy food at the dollar menu in McDonald's or Burger King to keep everyone fed. It wasn't the best way. But these families worked so hard to build a better life for them and their children that 
they literally have to be sort of like um, scrambling for pennies back then. So imagine now they're not working. We were drastically hit by um, the pandemic. We became the hotspot because we already had so many inequalities um, in our safety net systems. We were a community that the Latinx community and the non-English speakers had no idea that COVID-19 was gonna affect them in the way that it did. Um, our community went through devastation. At times, we found people living in a porch or being told that, they were, that when they got home, their apartment were locked out. So they were literally locked out of the apartment because they, when they were discharged after being with COVID-19, their people that they were renting the apartment didn't want them back there because there were so many uncertainties about COVID-19. So this pandemic hit us so hard in so many ways. And of course, food insecurity was devastating for us because people didn't have anything to eat. We have people coming to our, um, to our office or calling our office and asking them, asking us for milk, diapers, formula, whatever they have, any personal necessity. We had to basically adjust from being a nonprofit organization that provides human services and human rights to an organization that was just feeding the public right at the peak of the pandemic. So typically in a week, what, how much food do you get in and how much do you give out? So at the, peak of the funda- at, the, at the peak of the pandemic, which happened pretty much, I would say, from late March to um, late June, um, we were doing 11,000 boxes a week in three days. So we would do Tuesdays and Thursdays at our old office, 318 Broadway. Um, and then over the weekend, on a Saturday, we would take our truck to the housing projects especially those that have family housing projects because we knew that those moms were not able to make the line. So we would take the, the truck full of food. Right now we are doing, so this is back then. Right now we have continued to do that effort and we are doing 7,000 boxes of food a week. And we are doing it um, at least four times a week. And Gladys Vega, uh, head of La Collaborativa, you know, just to make the point, originally your organization, you know, and you still do a lot of different things, but the focus wasn't solely or so intensely on food. I mean, but now, I mean, that's taken precedence. That's how how intense it is. Listen, I never knew anything about pallets, power jacks, ordering, you know, four pallets of rice that feeds 3,000 people. Like, I have it down to a math. I mean, I'm an expert. Now in supermarkets, I can take care of market basket because I had to learn as we go because the need of feeding people was so devastating to us and it was threatening the well-being of our community that we had no choice of learning um, and we continue to do so. At, that time, at the same time, we've been doing um, displacement, preventing displacement from housing, um, expanding the testing. Because at the, at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody wanted to do tests. The test was only for the service. Um, COVID tests, to be clear. COVID tests, y- yeah. Yes. The COVID tests were only for the, for the first responders. Um, and basically, the Chelsea Collaborative did 
also financial su support. We gave approximately over $633,000 um, in cash assistance, and we have continued to do that. So we, have we, be we became the lifeline to immigrants in Chelsea. But that lifeline without food doesn't, it doesn't people don't, don't live without food. I always mm -hmm. tell you, once you have food in front of you, and once we get, people can be in, in despair, crying that they're going to be kicked out, and they listen, I don't even have money for, to buy food, and immediately we go to the food pantry, we, we go to the bodega, and we fill the, a, a car with bags of food for them, and then we're like, okay, so now you have food. Now tell me about the housing situation. How, how much do you owe? Can we have someone fill out your housing application so that the state can help you with raft? Can we figure out who's going to be tested in your household because one person has it in the other room that you don't know those people, but you're sharing the same bathroom, the same kitchen. And then from there, we identify all the other problems. And our case managers, we have four case managers, and immediately they go in assess the situation and we provide wraparound services. But feeding the people is, listen, at the beginning of the pandemic, I only had two months of um, financial um, stability within our organization. We were depending on state contracts. Ask me, Gladys Vega, did you care that you were closing down and the state was ordering to close down and you kept spending the two, the, the two months of funding that you had for yourself? I didn't care. Every time I heard that someone was without food, I'm like, I don't care that we don't have enough to, to sustain it for two months. We're going to make, we're going to do an instant card. We're going to send them food from market basket, mm -hmm. but no one's going to be without being fed. And that situation remains. The situation of people being hungry and thank God for Chelsea Eats. Thank God for all the other food pantries in the city of Chelsea that were there before my time, before you know, our local food pantry, and they step it up in terms of doing much more, but it's not enough. People were going hungry before the pandemic. I, I tell you, as a, as a young person in Chelsea that grew up in the school system, if I didn't wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning to be at, at the school by 7.30, I, I didn't have breakfast at home. I grew up in Chelsea. Right. I know what poverty is. My mom was a, a single mom with two jobs. And then she also had substance abuse issues. We had no food. I needed to make sure that by 7.30, I was sitting in that cafeteria so that I could be fed, I could have lunch, so then I could go home to one meal a day. That's all my mom could afford. Um, so that was my reality. Imagine when, that was high school, I mean, elementary for me, probably 40 years ago. Right. Imagine now with this pandemic and with people not without jobs. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is La Collaborativa Executive Director Gladys Vega and Tufts Associate Professor of Economics Laura G. We're discussing the experimental Chelsea Eats program. So picking up on that, what the Chelsea Eats program has done was to distribute food debit cards to uh, 2,000 people, as we said, who are participated in a lottery. So they were randomly selected to get it. Um, and then they could use that card 
you know, to to supplement the the food that they they needed to get for their families. Let's listen to one of the Chelsea Eats recipients. Vanessa Manessas says prices at the grocery store keep going up, and she told us through a translator that her family is dependent on other resources, not just Chelsea Eats. Her biggest worry is food. She said that every day that she goes and buys food at the supermarket, everything is a lot more expensive than it used to be. It's a lot harder to maintain her fridge. And she just worries that it won't, she, she won't have enough to provide. So Laura G., behavioral economist at, at Tufts, the Chelsea Eats program sounds like a food subsidy program that we might think of in terms of like a woman, infant, and children, or a SNAP, formerly food stamps. Um, would you describe it as such from your perspective as an economist? Or an, and if not, how does it differ? I would say that it very much sounds like you said, like a food subsidy program. It seems like individuals who win the lottery in this program get a debit card that is essentially able to be used for only um, food products and other necessities such as uh, formula. And so, yeah, it seems very similar, but it's, of course, something that is um, on top of the services that already exist um, at the state or federal level. So what's the pro and con of this? Because there are people in that community who are already eligible for some of that, as uh, Gladys was just describing. You know, she got the the school lunches um, at school when she was young. Um, you call this kind of uh, experimentation with a focus on food an earmarked program. What what do you mean by that? Uh, yeah. So what I mean is, is that the debit card that these individuals get is earmarked insofar as it can only be used for certain purchases, right? So they can only buy food products. And actually, I think it's probably constrained to a certain set of food products sometimes. Um, And they can't use it, for instance, for other needs that they might have. And Gladys alluded to this as well, that um, people have lots of other needs, right? They have rent issues. They have maybe problems finding their utilities and other things like that. And so something that economists have looked at very a lot in the recent past is when we are giving people um, subsidies, do we really want to earmark them? Do we want them to be specified to have to be used on only certain things? Or is it more efficient um, to just give them money and let them use it on whatever their highest need is right now? So might that be electricity? Might that be a need to buy clothing? Maybe need to buy school supplies, whatever it is. And, and there's actually a lot of research out there by Paul Niehaus over at UC San Diego comes to mind that at least in developing countries, actually just giving money directly with no um, label on it as to how it has to be used is more beneficial to the recipients than it is to give them money that has to be used on, let's say, food specifically. So the reason that this program came together, Chelsea Eats, and by the way, the city funded a couple of months, and then the Shaw Family Foundation and United Way funded January and February, and the goal is that that will get families through March. Um, we don't know what happens after that because, again, it was a pilot. It is a pilot program. It is an experimental program. You know, you've just described it, um, Laura, as a way that, well, okay, that seems to make sense. But yet this is not done much. Um, so what's why do you think that this kind of program, this kind of specific subsidy outside of what the federal government may or may not uh, offer, 
has not been employed more, the earmarked kind of programs? Why why have they not uh, been implemented in other places hardest hit like Chelsea? That's an interesting question. And actually, let me take a little broader question. One thing I think that I struggle with is why we why we have to do earmarked programs at all. And, and you know, maybe it would be better to give money without any sort of specific thing that it needs to be spent on. And my my sort of understanding of why that kind of program has become is not is as popular as one might expect it to be is that people worry that recipients of money that is not you know specified for food might spend the money on something that we think that they shouldn't and so sort of it's a, a little bit of a, a paternalistic thing that we're like oh well we can't just give somebody money with no specific thing that they're supposed to use it on because we're worried they'll spend it on something that we um deem maybe unnecessary and you know this i, I think in the research that I've seen in developing countries, at least, doesn't seem to take place that much. So, you know, the worry is someone will spend it on, I don't know, entertainment or something, but that doesn't really tend to happen that often in developing countries. And But it would lead me to believe that, you know, it wouldn't happen that much in the U.S. So what you're describing, what people have pushed back against um, in a in a different form, is something called a universal basic income or UBI. That's not what the Chelsea Eats program is. As you pointed out, it's quite earmarked and very focused. But it's what the former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang proposed. And it would have offered under his plans Americans $1,000 a month. And here he is speaking with NPR about his proposal in 2019. It does make sense on many levels because $12,000 a year is right below the U.S. poverty line. So it moves you up to that level. And this is per adult, mind you. So if you have two adults in your household, it's $24,000 a year. So it it moves you up and gets the pressure off, but it doesn't serve as a full work replacement. So it's enough to be a game changer, but it's not meant to be a full work replacement, and it's certainly not meant to solve every problem. So, you know, he's he's acknowledging it can't solve every problem. He's also uh, acknowledging that this that the thing that people are worried about, whoever the people are, are is that somehow people will not work. I will add that in Finland, um, they did something akin to this, a UBI, for uh, two years, uh, paid people $635, equivalent of, uh, for two years. And at the end, uh, the participants, they say, were happier and healthier, but they still couldn't get employed. But the officials said it was not that they didn't want to work, but that people in those circumstances, uh, in the direst of poverty situations, didn't have the skills to get some of the jobs. So it was kind of a, a circle there. Uh, but in the end, at least people were able to live better and healthier as a result of it. So there's that. Uh, by the way, we should mention that uh, Chelsea Eats the, the, is being documented and data is being collected by Harvard, and they are going to take a look at you know, what happened here to see if it was really efficient for people and how helpful it, it has been um, for those who participated. Gladys, what do you hear from people who are on the program? So what I hear and I see from people that are in the program, because we all build some of the applications for them. So we know some of the individuals, uh, this community is very small, and I see them all the time in the food line. Um, They continue to come to the food pantry to get items. Um, That way they don't have to spend, you know, $200 and $400 a month. Sincerely, it's nothing for the price of food. You cannot do much with that amount of money because the food costs so much. When you go to the supermarket, you buy five bags. And you have $150 gone. And you're like, what the hell did I buy? And remember that our community, the composition of a family 
in Chelsea is so blended and it's so different. Mm -hmm. And you may have, you know, four to six um, children involved in that family unit. Um, Kids are home right now. So they eat everything that you take when you go to the supermarket. So, I mean, $400 is a blessing. But once again, it's not enough as we have the kids full time at home opening the fridge and looking for things to eat. Chelsea, 15,000 people are not the ones that do not qualify for federal support. That is an undercount. You're not including the people that live under the shadows, the people that will not answer the census, the undercounted population. I would say that that number is more close to 25,000 people that do not qualify for any federal support. And even if their children qualify for WIC, because they're citizens of the United States and the parents are not. When when mm-hmm. the Trump administration took over, people literally got out of those programs when they had them, and they were and they were afraid of going back, and they remain very afraid of going into the SNAP program, the WIC, or any other program. This Chelsea Eats program, because it was done by the city um, of Chelsea in collaboration with many of uh, the nonprofit organization, and of course, the the blessings and the financial support of donors like the Shaw Family Foundation, it it became a reality and people knew that it didn't matter if you were documented or undocumented, that that information was not gonna be shared. And that for them was a relief every time that we kept saying, this has nothing to do with immigration, with your immigration status. But even, even for people that benefit from it, you know, the cost of food is huge and it's, it's not enough. And also in the conversation that how people are able to use the money or not, one of the things that has helped me tremendously is when the United Way and the city of Chelsea and all of us together created the one fund because when I had that money, if a person said to me, Gladys, my wife and, 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 and I are not working, we have three kids at home, you know, she cannot go to her 20-hour job that she was called to mm-hmm. because nobody, I don't have nobody to stay with the kids. I don't know how to read and write, so I'm not able to help them with the tutoring. And so she has to stay home, and that, therefore nobody's working. What my next question would be, do you have any other family members? Are they, is there a way that you can do something where you work together um, for tutoring support? And the answer was no. And then I went through that tree of questions, that list of questions, and I ended up sending them to California. I paid for a ticket, sent them to California. The husband is now working. She's doing a nanny job um, over there, and they're better off. So sometimes to have a, 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 a way that you can use that amount of money for getting to an interview. Sometimes people need that money for an Uber because they don't have nothing in their, in their, um, in their ATM. So we've been very, very creative in finding out how they're able to use cash assistance, and we've been helping them, helping them with that. So I understand when it, when it comes to thinking of is it food, is it that you use that amount of money for what? And I think it's a combination of both. It's very helpful either way. So if this kind of experimental program was to be done again, your preference would be that it wasn't earmarked just for food, but would be something that one could use for whatever your circumstances are in 
you know, just to try to defeat the, the poverty circumstances? I think it would be a majority, you know, a majority for food, but at least $100 for other. And that other can be, you know, like used to do with food stamps. You put something that you're not able to buy alcohol, you're not able to buy cigarettes or anything like that. But then that 100 other, you can use it, you know, for that interview that you have to go and take the train and a bus or whatever. Um, that it could be that other that you can save, you know, every every week, every month you can save those $300 that you need to buy that plane ticket and go to California or something like that. But I think that we have to think creatively because sometimes that little cash can help. It has helped us tremendously. I've been, I had a woman here that just came today to pick up her last $250 check, cash assistant check, um, and she's going to use it to, to pay the, a mover because she found from the shelter, she found an apartment um, and she's able to move to a, her own little apartment all the way in Brookline. But we made it happen for her. Um, so I think that that's, that's the creativity that we have to sort of like think about. Once again, we're not meeting. We're never going to be able to meet the need of the poverty that we have in this community at all. I'm telling you, we're living thousands of people behind because the blanket of poverty was there. We just lifted up. We just lifted um, to show the reality of a community that was neglected, that has been completely, completely forgotten. And the pandemic um, hit us very, very hard because of the overcrowding, because of the lack of uh, attention that the community of Chelsea had. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is La Collaborativa Executive Director Gladys Vega and Tufts Associate Professor of Economics Laura G. We're discussing the Chelsea Eats program. So just to emphasize how big an issue the food piece is, uh, let's take a listen to Vanessa, who is in the Chelsea Eats program. So again, uh, depending on her household, you get 400 if you're in a family of three or more. Two in a family get 300 A single person gets $200 with this program. And she told us through a translator that she uses food pantries to make up the difference between what the program provides and what her family needs. Here's Vanessa. No. So she always had access to the food pantry, and she's very thankful, but... She says that if it wasn't for the food pantry, she would have definitely gone hungry. So, Laura, it seems to me that programs like this that have worked to some extent, I'm looking at the Finland one, I'm looking at this program, even though um, participants say it's not enough, the issues are maybe there needs to be more put into the pot and also maybe it could be a little bigger. But I wonder from an economic standpoint, if a program like this is a bit broader, includes more people, I don't know if you have evidence that that works better or is it, does it work better if it's a smaller group, in, at least initially? Well, you know, I think it depends a little bit on what we mean by group and who we're extending it to. So something I think that um, has been shown in previous research about giving food assistance is it really matters who the person who is doing the shopping is in the household as to how well that budget gets sort of smoothed over the whole period of time. Because I think the way that food assistance tends to work is you maybe get a, um, a card at the beginning of um, a payment at the beginning of the month and you have to spread it out over the whole month, right? Um, they used to do this with 
coupons, I think food stamps, right? And, and they actually found that when people had food stamps, they would have what's called a calorie crunch at the end of the month. Essentially, they would spend a lot of, a lot of the money would get spent very early on in the month, and then there'd be this sort of, you know, dry time towards the end of the month, right before the next payment came. And there's some interesting work by Professor Mike Kuhn over out of the University of Oregon that he found that when they switched from using coupons to actual debit cards, that that calorie crunch actually got um, improved, meaning that people weren't having that crunch at end. And what his work sort of hypothesizes is that it's because when you have a debit card, that means you have a single decision maker in the household who's going to make sort of maybe, you know, a long-term plan for how they're going to use that money over the month versus when they had coupons, you could have other decision makers in the household just kind of grabbing those coupons and using them on their own throughout the month. So imagine you have like some teenagers in the household who are grabbing them and buying, you know, sort of maybe more less necessity items throughout the month at the very beginning of the month with the coupons. So when you talk about expanding the program, I think in some ways we really want to think about which decision makers are we expanding it to in the various households that we're expanding it to, and maybe if we could target it towards the, you know, best planners in each household, we could see a really big impact. So what would you like, what data would you like to see from Harvard after they've coalesced it all at the end of this pilot program that would indicate to you there were ways to make a program like this more successful? Because we're, we're talking about some of the lack of the program, even though obviously people need it. So uh, one thing I think is really great about the way that this program has been run is that it's a lottery system. Now, of course, what I guess the first best thing would be that we have enough resources to give this program to everybody who says that they need it. But unfortunately, finances being what they are, we don't usually have enough of them of that money to spread around. So I think it's really excellent that they have rolled it out as a lottery because they'll be able to, and I believe they're going to do this, track people who both won the lottery and got the payments and those who didn't get the payments. And that'll be really important because hopefully what they'll be able to do is survey those people at multiple times throughout the months that this program is going on, asking them about their well-being, about their um, needs for food, about the other things that they've been able to afford, maybe because they got to spend that money from Chelsea Eats on food um, and were able to free up money for, let's say, an Uber to an interview or um, a plane ticket to somewhere else where they could have gotten more help for their family. So I, I think it'll be really great to see data from both those who did get Chelsea Eats and those who didn't, because that will tell us a lot about what needs that program is meeting and what it isn't meeting as well. Well, one person who would like to see it continue, even though she's aware that it's not quite enough, is Vanessa. She's one of the people who uh, made it into the lottery one of the 2,000 people of Chelsea Eats. And she told us through a translator that while the money itself isn't enough, she hopes the program will be expanded. She just says to please continue the program. She hopes that it doesn't end. She says that even though she claims and, and thinks that there should be more, She's very grateful. She says to please don't leave us alone because even if we do receive money elsewhere, that money is used to prevent them from being evicted. So add to that, if you would, in a a closing thought, Gladys, um, would you like to see Chelsea Eats extended? Of course I do. It has to. I think that it's an immediate financial support that needs to be long-term. Um, as many of our families are dealing with 
displacement issues, with not having jobs, with not having the skills now for the jobs that are out there. So sometimes, you know, a job may be available that you can work from home. They don't know how to use the computer or they don't know how to follow up in terms of a court hearing because it's happening virtually and we need to sort of like figure them out. So I think the EAT program is a relief. It's a little bit less worried as they're able to get what they need immediately in the supermarket and then they go to the food pantries and get everything else. I think it's a it's must happen in a community where food insecurity has always been an issue. But you know what? We are one of those communities that the pandemic opened everything up and allowed people to see everything that was bad about poverty. And now it's out in the open. And now people are more reluctant to come out and talk about, you know, I've been eating frijoles and tortillas for one week with no meat but that's all we have, but we're okay. That was back then, that was the reality of many families, that that bag of maseca that we give in the food pantry with black frijoles was the only meal for many weeks. And, and they had jobs back then, but they needed to pay the bills, the utility bills, the rent. They needed to, some of them, support their family or pay that coyote that brought them here. I mean, our community members, realities and situations are so broad and so um, complex that one less thing for them to worry about is that little debit card that has $400. If they're able to keep getting it, that's ideal. But once again, we have approximately 25,000 people that remain in limbo, that are, are, are part of those that have no status, or that they have a 20-hour job um, and they're paying $1,500 or they're paying $1,000 for one bedroom until that landlord finds out that his, his apartment is being sublet and he kicks everyone out and we get them at the food pantry where we have to place 16 of them in hotels because that happened probably three weeks ago where, where people were renting rooms, three different rooms, three different families, the landlord found out that he, they were subleasing, kicked the master tenant out, and the master tenant needed to kick everyone out because the apartment, he, the landlord wanted the apartment empty, or he was going to call immigration on all of them. That was a threat. And they all ended up at the collaborative, and we had to place them in um, hotels. That's our reality. And that is why food for me, if you give me food, it's, it's, it's love to my soul, I begin to heal. Food for me, it's a healing, it's a healing procedure. It's a healing, it makes me feel everything is gonna be okay. As, as long as I know that I have a place to eat and a place to provide a, a, a meal for my kid, everything else will come into place, will fall into place. So I think the Chelsea Eats program must continue. It must continue and, and, and these food pantries must go on because it's not enough for our community. And 2,000 people, it's amazing, but once again, it's not enough. And I don't mean to be, not be unappreciated. I just, I'm just calling it as it is from the experience that I have working at the Collaborative for over 32 years with this community. Thank you so much. Thank you both for joining me for this very important conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 
Gladys Vega is the executive director of La Collaborativa, a food pantry and community center based in Chelsea, supporting the Latinx community. Laura G. is an associate professor of economics at Tufts University. And our translator is Teneri Garcia. Coming up, how one local community is fighting the spread of misinformation about COVID-19. The Cambridge Community Corps, a public health reserve force. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we called Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. They are in the parks or going door to door at a safe distance, distributing info about counteracting the spread of COVID-19. They are members of the Cambridge Community Corps, part of a new pilot program based on an old initiative first created under President Kennedy. Joining me remotely is Claude Jacob. He's the chief public health officer for the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hello, Claude Jacob. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Glad to have you. Also with me, Antonio Horatius, a Cambridge Corps member. Uh, Mr. Horatius. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to have both of you. Um, I'm going to start with you, Mr. Jacob. The Cambridge Community Corps is really a part of a uh, pilot project. Tell me how it all came to be. This is an initiative that was birthed uh, during this ongoing uh, COVID storm that we're experiencing here in the city of Cambridge. Uh, the Cambridge Community Corps, and we also call it C3, we launched it last summer, July of 2020. Uh, and it was an opportunity for us to at least work with members of our community uh, like, uh, like Antonio to at least provide messaging, support residents through this experience. So the core members have been deployed at area parks and playgrounds and in the different districts across the city. And these days they are the greeters of record at our COVID testing sites, as well as deploying to visit our different seniors in the buildings, those who are eligible to be vaccinated at this time. Well, one of the reasons that you launched it and that this kind of uh, reach out to on the ground reach out, that's how I would describe it, uh, came to be, is because there was a lot of misinformation. Let's just take a listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci said just a couple of weeks ago when he told CNN misinformation and confusion had contributed to the coronavirus death toll. When you're starting to go down paths that are not based on any science at all, and we've been there before, I don't want to rehash it, that is not helpful at all. And particularly when you're in the situation of almost being in a crisis with the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths that we have, when you start talking about things that make no sense medically and no sense scientifically, that clearly is not helpful. Now, that was Dr. Fauci. Claude Jacob, the reason he said that is because uh, a lot of the effort by both federal and local authorities, such as yourself, has really been about getting correct information um, to people so that they don't react um, irresponsibly because they don't really have the right information. And that's the essence of what the people on the ground are doing in the Cambridge Community Corps. Yes, I, I would just add that, again, this is, harkens to the experience we've been having on the ground. 
but to pick up on the, the points and why this is important, we wanted to come up with a, a better way to ensure compliance with all of the different mitigation strategies to, to stop the spread of the virus on the ground. And so we wanted to come up with a way to encourage members to wear masks, to remind folks about the importance of washing their hands, but, but also to at least remind folks of the importance of maintaining the appropriate social distancing. So we opted to use uh, an educational approach uh, rather than a heavy hand to enforce. Uh, but at the end of the day, this was an opportunity for us to engage members of our community to help support our residents through this experience because the COVID fatigue is real. Antonio Horatius, you're one of the members of the Cambridge Community Corps. How did you get involved um, and what's it been like? I was recommended uh, to Corps by a friend who worked in City Hall and was telling me about this great opportunity working, uh, working with the city. So I thought it'd be a good fit for me since I grew up around the city. So I know like most of the people who actually run these programs, I met them through other like youth events. And my experience with the program has been pretty positive. Um, residents are very appreciative and thankful for what we're doing. Um, for the most part, the information that they're getting isn't something they have, I want to say, direct access to, whether it be COVID, uh, COVID testing sites or just other information about uh, PPE and COVID guidelines. So getting this information to our residents while navigating language barriers and other issues is very, uh, it's very helpful. Why don't you describe what, what a, a day is like when you're uh, in doing your work as a Cambridge Community Corps member? What, what do you do? How do you start? How do you, you know, how do you interact with people? So when I'm in the parks, I usually interact by, with residents by just waving or trying to spark up an uh, innocent conversation and then leading into what Cambridge is actually offering when it comes to COVID testing sites and other resources. Uh, for the most part, residents are like unaware and are just happy to jump at the chance of a free COVID test. And are they comfortable with you? I mean, you know, if somebody just walks up to me and starts talking about free COVID testing, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, how do they respond? <laughs> Usually, you know, it's it's like the beginning of any like awkward conversation with a stranger. It's a little standoffish a bit. But after I let them know I'm from the actual area and I'm familiar with their fears and concerns and the stigma around testing and other uh, COVID safety, I, it's pretty much easy to like ease them into it. And we should say you're you're identifiable. You're wearing something. Oh, yeah. We're wearing bright orange shirts so they know it's us when they see us. You can see us from a mile away. <laughs> OK. All right. Um, so, Claude, this is something that uh, the, this kind of work uh, with uh, on the ground work is what I, I like to call it. This kind of core work is something you're quite familiar with because it was a part of your early life. You were a, a member of AmeriCorps at one point. Yes, back in the 90s, I was an AmeriCorps volunteer on the west side of the city of Chicago. Uh, it was an experience that I decided to, to, to have. It was a year-long commitment, um, so that model always stuck with me. It was my exposure to work in community directly. I worked on a project where I, I taught a health careers class at a high school, and eventually I was hired by that hospital system and served as the director of community affairs at that site uh, for a number of years. So our tagline with the AmeriCorps model, uh, which is like the Domestic Peace Corps, it's about getting things done. And um, I really appreciate the, uh, at least the exposure to the public health activities uh, in Chicago. I was able to at least carry that experience forward to the, the city of Baltimore and now here in, in Cambridge. Um, so I just want to underscore a little bit about uh, AmeriCorps and, and why this would resonate for you in this way uh, with the Cambridge Community Corps. So we should note that the uh, Peace Corps was created under President Kennedy. 
And then later on, AmeriCorps came together under President Bill Clinton when he, under the National and Community Service Trust Act of 1993, put together the VISTA Volunteers and the National Civilian Community Corps. And all of that became AmeriCorps. But the core of it, if we can use core 15 more times, <laughs> is that uh, you do community outreach um, kind of in a very personalized way. So these sending these T-shirted information people out and among the folks uh, with information about COVID and its spread is really important. Now, Claude, we've heard a lot, um, and I'm going to ask Antonio the same question, about some people not being receptive to wanting to do um, all of the things that the CDC and every other health department and health expert has recommended, which is wearing of masks, keeping a social distance. So here you have your volunteers going out to definitely um, recommend that and also offer of other information. Have you met with any hostility from uh, some of the people who perhaps don't want to hear it or don't want to believe it? The fatigue is real this season. So tied to COVID, tied to isolation fatigue, tied to quarantine fatigue, so recognizing that reality, we decided to go with a, a softer glove to try to encourage folks to comply with all of our mitigation efforts in order to at least ensure uh, and minimize the spread of the COVID-19 virus in our community. So it's by design. We deployed, we recruited folks who are familiar with the community. We looked at our um, higher risk areas across the city. We worked directly with the Department of Public Works and the Department of Human Service Programs and with the police department, just so we could identify the places of higher need. Uh, so when you say hostility or pushback, what I would say is that um, the biggest challenge with the COVID experience is that the situation keeps changing from day to day, mm -hmm. from week to week, from month to month. And so that in and of itself causes the fatigue. Um, so we wanted to figure out and be more empathetic, uh, which is why by the time we got to the summer, we realized, and folks, most folks may forget that at, at one point, masks were not as in vogue. Um, there was concern about limited uh, personal protection equipment being available for frontline healthcare workers. Um, now you fast forward to the summer, and we wanted to seize on the opportunity to, to use it as a teachable moment in the area of parks. And so uh, recruits like Antonio were, were excellent ambassadors to help us have those conversations, reconnect with community members and residents, but at the end of the day, it's less about a punitive approach, but more about an educational approach. And I can't thank our team enough for being connected to residents, being sensitive to, to the experience tied to COVID, but more importantly, to recognize there are other ways that we could make use of our ambassadors or our core members to help support residents at this time. So, Antonio, did you have you faced much hostility as you're out and about uh, trying to interact with people? I wouldn't say I faced any uh, hostility, but I've definitely, um, you know, I've seen people be a little skeptical of what we're doing and how we're actually approaching people. But for the most part, the conversations I've had were pretty uh, peaceful and positive. Most residents or residents who have been inside this long are just tired of hearing about COVID, like what Claude said. So they're kind of tuning out to like news or any information or updates of that matter. So when you come to them telling them like, hey, you should come get this vaccine, they're a bit skeptical but after explaining like, hey, is the Moderna vaccine? If you have more information, we have it listed on the city website. And I just give them more information that the city has available to, you know, kind of ease the residents into 
dismissing the stigma. And so, Antonio, because I'm glad you mentioned that website, because at Cambridge, I think it's almost every day, uh, puts out some information in a website. But um, to both of your points, um, I don't know that a lot of people are opening that up every day now because they just feel like, okay, I've read what's in there. I don't need to know anything else. When in fact, Antonio, what you're telling them is the latest information because that's the whole point of the program is to have the latest information. Yes. So uh, for an example, like these past two weeks, we've been going into like senior living homes, registering in them, asking them if they want the vaccine. Some of them were completely unaware that the vaccine was even rolling out like this early. Wow. They were actually part of phase two. So going door to door definitely has its advantages from residents, you know, who don't speak too much English or just don't have like access to reliable internet, things of that nature. So from doing this work, Antonio, um, does it seem to you that there needs to be probably even more community outreach? Because if you're telling me there are people who are not even aware that it's out, it feels like for some of us, that's all we're talking about 24 seven. Um, that just says that we, we have just begun to make some inroads, right? Yeah, this, uh, the core and what we're doing, I want to feel like we're just getting started. We're at a good pace right now with, uh, again, residents actually coming into testing centers voluntarily without, you know, having to force them to be down their throats. We don't want to, our, our job isn't to try to enforce like rules on people, just encourage. We want to encourage, you know, good behavior, good practices. So that means, you know, just letting them kind of do it on their own time, but saying, hey, this resource here is always available for you whenever you change your mind. Now are you finding that people come up to you as opposed to waiting for you? They see you. Will they approach you often as opposed to your having to approach them? Definitely. I've definitely been approached by residents. Sometimes it's just about bird watching. Sometimes it's about testing. <laughs> Sometimes residents just want to talk. You know, they haven't really been interacting with anybody else in their immediate vicinity because of quarantine and isolation. So it's good on that point. I get to uh, make a deeper connection with residents. All right. So, Claude, um, Antonio makes a startling point for some of us, again, as I say, who feel like we're just inundated with information all the time, that there are people who don't even know um, yet what what's happening, let alone um, getting it wrong. They just don't have the information. Uh, so that must make you feel like, wow, this is this is something that is critical and particularly in certain neighborhoods, as Antonio suggests. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on that point. Uh, so while we have been dealing with this pandemic for going on a year, the, the bigger challenge these days is the infodemic um, because there's so much information and in some instances uh, misinformation. So to Antonio's point, uh, we make assumptions that just because something, some information is made available on the website or that everyone, say, you know, out and about maybe talking about this or thinking about this, we also forget that folks are tired. Um, and so people may be tuning out. Um, folks are uh, tired of trying to comply with the mask order or with the social distancing measures. So there are about 30 core members, as I understand, in rotation at, at any one time. And um, we were mentioning the, the connection on the web. People can, as they think about it, so let's say they had an interaction with a core member earlier and then thought, oh, shoot, I should have asked about so-and-so. They can reach out to this program specifically and and ask uh, to get their questions answered? Yes. Core members are available. Again, physically they're available. We also pass out materials and redirect folks to the appropriate uh, web-based information or the phone numbers. So to Antonio's point, even what we learned this past week, um, based on the groups that are eligible to be vaccinated 
in the phase two group one, uh, those that are 75 years and older in these uh, eligible uh, diff uh, senior buildings, uh, we, by knocking on the doors and passing out materials, we are more connected to what the residents know or may not know. And so the cores are one resource, but we have other modes of making sure that we connect and share information, whether it's door-to-door -door or through the nightly updates uh, made available on the website. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Cambridge Chief Public Health Officer Claude Jacob and Antonio Horatius, a Cambridge Community Corps member. We're discussing the Cambridge Community Corps' activities to slow the spread of COVID-19. So let's take a listen to President Biden. Um, last month, he was noting the need to get accurate information about the vaccines out to the public. We also see that disinformation campaigns are already underway to further undermine trust in the vaccines. Our administration will launch a massive public education campaign to rebuild that trust. We'll help people understand what science tells us that the vaccines help reduce the risk of COVID infections and can better safeguard our health and the health of our families and our communities. So this has been a, a, a change in, of course, the administration and the approach and how to get information out to people about, particularly about this new wave of the vaccines. But just trying to um, combat what people think they already know um, is part of the issue as well, Claude. Yeah, I just would add, again, the timing of this, uh, it, it's spot on. So just last week, the governor's office announced the rollout of the statewide campaign about trust the vax, get the facts. Um, and this dovetails with the pulse of what we're hearing on the ground. So I, I do agree that there's an opportunity recognizing that we've been at this for going on a year. Um, and we do want to make sure that folks recognize the power of the trusted sources out in community, which is where we've, we've deputized the Cambridge Community Corps members to help us with that. Now, as I understand it, there is a national demonstration pilot program like yours going on in other cities. Do you have any sense of what they're doing? Is it very much exactly like the Cambridge Community Corps? They're doing something different. And what's been the response to, to their effort? It's a great question. I would say that there, our model is not unique to Cambridge, so they call it different, um, different words, a different name, neighborhood ambassador programs, or the community health workers who are outreach workers, or uh, just promotores in general um, to promote healthier lifestyles within the Latinx community. So what I would say is that it comes in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, we pride ourselves on our linguistic and cultural diversity with the core members. Uh, because that's the way it's customized here in Cambridge. But uh, it's not unique to our community, and we are aware that other cities and towns in the Commonwealth are, are applying and implementing these neighborhood ambassador programs in order to help um, uh, address some of the issues and concerns around uh, the vaccine rollout, and more importantly, to remind folks and encourage them uh, and to trust uh, the rollout of the vaccine as it's taking shape. Now, Claude, originally this was supposed to be a short-term project. It got extended. So now where are you? Uh, how, will it just keep going, or do you, there, is there an end to it? What, what's happening? Uh, great question. Again, I don't have a crystal ball on this. Uh, our agility uh, on the ground has been our best asset through this COVID experience. Uh, we've had to remain nimble. We did recruit uh, the core members. Uh, our intent was to get us through the summer. 
by the time we got to September, after Labor Day, we realized, okay, we have a need to get us through the fall. Um, we, again, over the course of time, we've recruited over 30 core members. We have, Actively, we have 16 in queue right now, um, and I believe there are eight or ten of them who have been with us from day one. So, again, we ask for them, uh, the core members, to be flexible with us. Uh, the COVID experience requires that we adjust our routines day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, uh, and going on a year. So I, I do have to thank Antonio and our incredible staff for helping us to adjust our routines. So what started out as uh, an outreach program in the parks, uh, you know, with an orange T-shirt and wearing shorts and handing out masks and, and Purell or hand sanitizer, we, we've now had to at least adjust not only the garb now that they're wearing these fleece jackets to be a little warmer, um, but also to connect to the need right now, which is to uh, get to residents, those of uh, the higher risk priority groups uh, who may not be aware that they're eligible to be vaccinated. So we've adjusted our routine each and every week and each and every, every month, and that's been a, a, a staple part of our, of our efforts on the ground. Antonio, I'll let you have the last word. Um, I know this is a job, uh, but has it become more than that for you? Uh, is it rewarding in some way um, to do this work? It definitely is rewarding. You know, residents always thank me for my, the work I do and thank me for actually, you know, going to their door, taking time to just have a conversation with them rather than just bombard them with either flyers, emails, or just like building notices. So they're very appreciative of that. And it makes me feel good that, you know, I'm actually making a difference, helping my community. And to Claude's point, you know, our our core is always adapting, always moving to fill the need. So this just past fall, we uh, we were helping with uh, flu vaccines. You know, that was a different type of uh, outreach compared to COVID. You know, there wasn't that much disinformation regarding flu vaccine, but still, people were still hesitant, you know, to get out of their homes and things like that just because COVID's out. And, you know, they think because, you know, there's going to be a long line at the flu clinic that they might catch it there, but that wasn't the case at all this past fall. All right. So I thank you both for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your time, and this was fantastic. Claude Jacob is the Chief Public Health Officer for the City of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Antonio Horatius is a Cambridge Community Corps member. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.